You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! As most of you know, over the past quarter century, Dr. Bob and I have given airtime to numerous parapsychologists and experts in the field of remote viewing, psi phenomena, personal and transpersonal psychology, and of course, much more. Dr. Stanley Krippner of Saybrook Institute, whom also worked with my husband as he proceeded through his doctoral work, and is our friend here, Ingo Swan, who developed the protocols for Stanford Research Institute. They and numerous dozens of guests, I guess you can say numerous dozens, well, numerous guests have joined us. And I think when when we say that we've been sort of on the vanguard of military remote viewing, it's true, having covered it for over 25 some years and we've known and worked with both field operators ourselves, both military and civilian and have looked at their settings as well as their interpreters and the results of their work. Well tonight continuing that long legacy of the technical and theoretical aspects of human beings multi-dimensional minds is our guest Dr. Jean Millay. Jean has anthologized and explored multi-sensory perception, how it works, how it can be enhanced, and what we humans have as natural tools of, I guess, what can best be called, as she calls it, hyperspace. So I hope you'll stay with us this portion of 21st Century Radio. We are joined by Dr. Jean Millay for a brief overview of her North Atlantic book release, 1999, Multidimensional Mind, Remote Viewing in Hyperspace. Thank you so much for joining us, Jean. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is fun. Well, it will be, and I think 21st Century Radio has made such a commitment to this kind of work um, that for us it's also very playful as well as being um, helpful to the community. How did you yourself become interested in parapsychology in general? Well, 50 years ago when my daughter was born and I was calming her, and my grand, I was in San Francisco. My grandfather uh, had a heart attack in Reno, and he came to tell me. So I put through a phone call immediately and found out that he had just died and that, that my mother was there. And she asked me, how did you know? And in those days, you know, I couldn't say Grandpa told me. And, and I didn't enough to just, you know, be still and, and let the conversation continue. But it has been a force driving me to know more about it. And I That's think, you know, one of the things I've done throughout the many decades I've been on the air is I've asked people to call in and share their paranormal experiences. And of course, what you know, and what anybody who is interested in this field finds out is that it's not as uncommon as the skeptics would have us believe. And that in fact, what you described happens to millions of people on earth. Yes, all over the world, they are their relatives, you know, exactly, and allow them to participate. But we have uh, several things that have blocked that. And, uh, uh, one of them is a limited idea of religion, and the other one is a very limited idea among scientists of the nature of the universe. Exactly, and I know um, we share many of the same um, researchers in common through our 
um, like connections. And I know in talking with Dr. Bill Tiller of Stanford Research Institute, we've often talked about how even quantum mechanics kind of stopped along the way when at first it looked like it was expanding our understanding, which fortunately it is beginning to open up again. Now, your own history, Gene, includes exploration of consciousness and resonance between mind and matter. Maybe we can talk in general about the things that seem to connect the many different, um, I guess, sensory apparatus we have, because you've talked about mind-to-mind communication, telepathic or remote viewing, sensory and extrasensory perception. What seems to connect all of these extraordinary talents we humans are designed to use? Consciousness. We are all multidimensional spirits. And the research now is becoming very, very strong that if you want to consider what the skeptics talk about as the four dimensions of space-time, you could do that for, for your microphone, okay, your box. Take an inanimate box in front of you, and you have three dimensions, and if it exists in time, that's four dimensions. But you can't describe a human being that way. You can't describe life itself that way. And since remote viewing has, and telepathy has shown over the last many years and proved scientifically that we have access to what they call non-local space-time, I can send a message or receive a message from my daughter in Hawaii, 3,000 miles away from California. I can, and I have done many, many experiments in re- remote viewing, We're not limited by space. We're not limited by time. And so you can't say that about a box. A box doesn't grow and it doesn't reproduce. (laughs) And so we're really into another dimension. Now, some of the newer scientists have argued about whether how many dimensions beyond space-time there are. I remember the Scientific Americans said there were up to 11 dimensions beyond space-time, and I'm not a physicist nor a mathematician, but uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher uh, and Saul Paul Sarag have spent quite a bit of time talking about the other dimensions of our universe. Right, exactly. And, sure. I, and I know when, I, when William Tiller joined us, he talked about his discovery of the 10-dimensional universe, which, of course, fits mystic traditions, including the Kabbalistic tradition, which is always interesting to see modern science kind of comport to spiritual legacy. Well, all of this is happening on one level, and on another level, uh, you know, book-driven folks have a, have trouble seeing that these things, you know, incorporating them into our educational system. Mm-hmm. I, for instance, would like to start by putting biofeedback in public school starting with fifth grade. And and describe for our audience, I know you've done a great deal of work along this line throughout your career in educational settings and have been working with others to show that children who have been being drugged, basically, because they're curious kind of kids, and they're being given Ritalin, which really destroys them for the long run. How does biofeedback help anyone, as well as a population that seems to be suspect or susceptible to the uh, school system drugging them? Well, it's been known for 30 years that a a kid can learn 
to increase the focus of attention through brainwave biofeedback or other forms of biofeedback. And so we were, many of us, many of the teachers were involved in doing that. Then the biofeedback societies were taken over by the therapists and third-party payments from insurance companies, and teachers don't make any money. Right. And, and so uh, the schools are always strapped for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government, uh, federal government, rather spend it on war killing people than educating people. And, uh, you know, the problems with our economy is really the wars, which benefit only the military and the... Uh, the folks who make arms, and it doesn't benefit the knowledge. It doesn't benefit the growth of society to understand that we're all multidimensional and that we can communicate with each other. And when a lot of people (laughs) establish the same frequency, for example... You know, the random number generators around the yeah, world. Let, let's talk about that for a moment, because I know when I spoke with Dean Radin, and we have on a number of occasions about that, how mm-hmm. groups of people concentrating on the same thing, even unwittingly aware, meaning not aware that everybody else is like when Princess Diana died and there was a, a big peak in these random number generators. What does it show us? Describe for our audience, some who may not be familiar with what it is, but also what it has demonstrated. Well, I'm sure uh, Dean has mentioned this. He's really the top researcher in the field right now, and uh, uh, Roger Nelson running the uh, Global Consciousness Program is something we we need to be more and more aware of, that when a million, six million people are watching, for instance, the same TV program or the same concept, the random number generators around the world are no are no longer random. There's a, a sort of a, a, a coherence in energy that affects them. Now, what we were doing back with my, my research in training people to synchronize their brainwaves with each other, and I'll have to start with that before we go further, it was, we learned very early when at a great Ed concert, when people are in the same chemistry, the same music, and the same rhythm, and the same, you know, clapping hands and dancing up and down, that all they're all feeling the same in the same rhythm. There's an extraordinary feeling of oneness throughout the whole group. And it, it had an evolutionary feeling. So I wanted to look at this. Uh, Stan Krippner introduced me to what he was doing at Dream, it's a Dream Lab, right. and he was doing some training then, so I got trained in uh, experiment in bio, brainwave biofeedback with him and with uh, Dr. Barbara Brown, and and so Tim Scully, who had helped build the electronics for the Grateful Dead, uh, she, Barbara Brown was looking for volunteers, and so I uh, introduced them. And in those days, you had to be a big organization. You had to be an institute or a government or a school to be able to look at brainwaves. It took a whole room full of computer, mm-hmm. probably $100,000 or grant or something. Individuals couldn't look at it. And, and so at one point I said, gee, Tim, 
we need toys like this to play with. You know, the government isn't ever going to look at what we want to look at. And the following year, and that was 1969, I, ha I was in New York again, hanging out at the Dreamland and uh, volunteering, and, and uh, he came, Tim Scully came to, through town, and he handed me the first portable brainwave machine. And it was very simple, with sort of headphones and, uh, you know, a little circuit, and, and you'd either hear something that sounded like a mosquito if you were in the fast frequencies or a, or a bumblebee if you were in the slower ones. And, and so we had a chance to start looking at it, and gradually, uh, a couple of years later, he had a brainwave analyzer that would pick up uh, the signal from uh, one, you know, one basic location and translated into separated out so you could train for either alpha or beta or you know or theta or adjust your frequency range from then he I wanted to look at two people synchronizing again right coming into entrainment uh-huh and uh, uh, and so uh, he gave me two brainwave analyzers and eventually two switching boxes so I could turn on electrical energy I wanted to provide a kind of feedback. And uh, I still looking, wanted to look at two people, and we were mostly looking at one side of the brain. Right. Uh, and so as soon as I got this together, I started, I, pra I practiced on the machines looking at both sides simultaneously, and I said, wow, they're different. And there's a major difference between thinking, between emotional and between phase coherent, when you're not talking to yourself and it's in the center of your brain, and we check this out with different meditators also, and that what happens when the when you think about you don't have to count beads and you know and and bend over three times. Here is a tool for the modern age that we can get a tone feedback for phase coherence. For now, for those that may not know what phase coherence is, and I think it's important to this oh, discussion, yes. perhaps you can describe that in a simple fashion. Okay. Well, we would get a different signal. Actually, I was you know looking at the occiput or the back part of the brain, and we'd have electrodes and a ground, and we'd have electrodes right over where where your seeing mechanism is going on. You know, there things happen in different parts of the brain. And, and I'd get a different signal. And sometimes I'd be in beta on one side and alpha on the other. And sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes I'd get a red flash or whatever. I'll tell you about this. Most people, scientists with big machinery, were looking at um, recordings with lines. And what I had done, because my background is in art, I designed a light sculpture. Now, this was large pieces of plexiglass about 30 inches across and maybe 24 high. And plexiglass carries light on the end. So I could carve little dots of light, which is how I was seeing auras in those days. And But this had to be, of course, very abstract. Uh, I carved little dots of, of holes in the plexiglass so that when they were lit on the end, they would turn the color of the end. Mm -hmm. 
And so these, it was a whole series of mandalas that all sort of fit together when put together, but there was a different pattern. But you had then a a visualization of your brainwave activity, and the colors reflected the different states of the brainwave phenomena. Right. So that we'd have blue would be for alpha for both sides, Mm -hmm. and green would be for the faster frequencies for both sides, red for theta, and then white for the case you moved around too much or blinked your eyes and you weren't looking at brainwaves. So I was starting to see things that the relationship. And we also had the relationship between the various wavelengths. Brain, yeah. Uh huh. And the different ways you were thinking. And how it affected the brainwave patterns, meaning what what you're describing, what you do in extraordinary detail in your book. And I need to really say to you what everybody who has written about it or read it has said, Jean, is that your work, multidimensional mind, remote viewing in hyperspace, is really like a catalog of the who's who and the experiments that have been done. Um, and there's just so much visual information in it. It's it's a wonderful compilation and analysis of the field. So I, I need to say that because we can't do justice to it, to our conversation tonight. But look, we have to take a little break. We'll come back, finish up our discussion about phased um, entrainment, uh, the things that, that sort of happen between people um, who come into rapport with one another, both consciously and unconsciously, both in proximity and at a distance. If you've just tuned in, I'm Zoe Hieronymus. Our guest is Dr. Jean Millay, M-I-L-L-A-Y. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Robert Sachs. I'm the author of Tibetan Ayurveda and the book Rebirth in the Pure Land. You're now listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. She's a wonderful interviewer, and you're going to really enjoy whatever you're going to be hearing with her. If you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website, www.robertsachs.net or diamondwayayurveda.com. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and this is 21st Century Radio. Let's return now to our interview. Jean Millay joins us. Her book, Multidimensional Mind, Remote Viewing in Hyperspace, is the uh, title of her remarkable book. I encourage you, if you have an interest in all things sensory, remote viewing, multidimensionality, non-locality, and those things that we experience as humans that our society doesn't do much to enhance and often troubling way suppresses, um, this is a great book for you to add to your library. Again, Multidimensional Mind, Remote Viewing in Hyperspace by Dr. Jean Millay, M-I-L-L-A-Y. So, Jean, I want to come back and finish up the biofeedback and what happens when people become entrained to one another. You you had mentioned from the Grateful Dead and other experiences, and certainly we see it in tribal cultures or spiritual circles where people are chanting the same chant or singing the same song or dancing the same dance there is an elevation that happens and sort of um, almost a peak quality to the way in which consciousness becomes unified. Absolutely. Uh, This is fundamentally important for people to, in their society, in their their social structure, to be able to come together sometimes. Now, there are different groups and they have different belief systems and they it's very hard for them to come together as a human family. But when, in our work, the first thing we found out was that just having two people producing alpha rhythms in the alpha brainwave range was not enough 
it wasn't close enough. So then we got uh, um, Enter added a, a, a different sound system, and the, Tim added the phase comparator so that we could take the two signals from the two different brainwave machines and run them through what he called a phase comparator and get, produce another tone when they were much closer, closer in frequency, closer in the way the waveforms fit together in phase. Would this be in the feedback to the two yes. practitioners? So they would yes. know that they were coming into phase by what they could hear from this third component. Right. Okay. So you'd, if you're both an alpha, you'd get a tone. If only one was and the other wasn't, you wouldn't hear the tone. Mm-hmm. If you're both an alpha, you'd get the tone. And then when you got closer to phase, you'd get a harmonic. It was a nice own tone, mm-hmm. and the harmonic was, you know, was very mellow. And it would encourage a person to to go to that space. Mm-hmm. Now, in the first study that I did with the students from Sonoma State Center as a junior college and so on, uh, we were, I was trying to train them to do it. Well, now almost all of them could learn to increase uh, the phase coherence between both right and left hemisphere of their own head. But some of them either could do it or couldn't do it. I mean, there was no statistics there. But what we did find, the people who already had rapport, a uh, good relationship, they had were able to synchronize their brain waves. They also were the ones that had the best telepathy. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they were synchronizing while they were doing telepathy. We couldn't measure both at the same time with our equipment in you know, in 1974. And even <laughs> we, so, we know the observer effects. Sometimes we alter that which we study. So it becomes pretty delicate <laughs> as well, it you was pretty it. clear right away to uh-huh. me that there is no observer. You know, we're all participants. So uh-huh. The idea of having an objective reality when you're dealing with people is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Or if I got really involved in the numbers and, and the dials and, the, you know, and mm-hmm. keeping track, my people would fall out their synchronization would drop. Mm-hmm. I would have to stop and close my eyes and sort of put myself back in, into sync with them so that what we were measuring could be measured. Right. And right, right. right away, my own feeling that in, in most uh, studies of psychology over, you know, minute mm-hmm. ideas, mm-hmm. is that how you ask the question and how much intention you put in it as a researcher can get, probably get you at least a, a P minus .05 statistics. So there's a lot out there that really... Mm, well, but, uh, but it's interesting you bring up this point of the effect of the observer and that there's no such thing as subjective analysis because what it does, again, once again, prove is that all mind is connected and that all consciousness moves through um, a connecting field, whether we want to admit to our oneness or not. I mean, we're having individual experiences, but we're also affecting every other individual experience. So in summary, because I want to move on to so many of the other wonderful things you cover, including trance and telepathy in general. Um, but how does biofeedback then, and why is this such an important addition to education? Meaning, why is this something you want to see in the school system? Well, there are many reasons, and, and I will just mention in passing that high-stakes testing is the way to ruin education. Mm-hmm. We're not teaching multiple choice. We're teaching thinking. And we all don't think alike. Right. So biofeedback as self-discovery science, 
will will allow people to find out, gee, maybe I am a little bit different, but I can still control my mind, and I don't have to be hyperactive. I can focus my attention. Focus of attention is the key to intelligence. Mm-hmm. When you teach that, and it's clearly possible to teach it to most of the people I've encountered, it's, it's, you're increasing the intelligence. When we talk about attention... They can pay attention to more of the information. They can take on more. If you can't focus, you're not you're not learning the same thing. Well, and, and 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 there seems to be from all the different things you're writing about that the component of attention has also a great deal to do with the resonance that does or doesn't occur either between the subject one is studying or the person one is talking to or the thing one is focused on at a distance. Absolutely. Now, when a person can learn through their own will and, and intention, they can learn to increase their focus of attention. And from there on, uh, a lot more things are possible in the realm of education, both verbally and non-verbally. There's something else. When children practice the heart math, program, which is, there are other, I guess there are other heart programs, that's the only one I know. No, and we've covered that as well on my shows, the Heart Math Institute and their work. Well, if, you know, adults are learning and it's fine. My daughter used it as a counselor in a high school in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. That's uh, sort of a heart-based culture there. They understood it fairly well. But one day a girl came into her office and she'd taken speed and who knows what else. And her she had already learned how to bring her heart into a, a coherent and it was all her rhythms were dangerous you know all the way up to you know 190 and down to 50 or something like that and very irregular just from one to the other well because she'd already learned something uh she was able to practice and was able after an hour and a half to stabilize it she didn't get it back to her former coherence but see we're still talking about coherence right we're talking about things that really line up and one thing that i had read recently in scientific american mind was by someone talking about neurons and who had studied the neurons and electron microscopes and so on and what he said was and i'm sorry i don't have the name in front of me was that the phenomenal abilities of the human mind are caused not by neurons, but from the coherence of brainwaves. And, you know, after 30 years, I have to say, I was really delighted to see that. Mm-hmm. And then when we when we talk about the field, so to speak, Lynn Mattagart wrote a book by that title, and there's been many researchers who have talked about this interconnectivity, this field in which consciousness is. When you look then at whether it's children or adults or shamans or your daughter, um, share with us for a moment what happens when our mindset goes against the aptitude versus a cultural supporting it. <laughs> well, you have to deal with television. Television is a flickering light which entrains your focus. Grab your focus, fills it full of, of uh, you know, whether, you know, it doesn't matter if the argument is, is for a Democrat or Republican, it is when you really look down to the course of it. 
television is controlled by the corporations. And they spend millions of dollars on how to hypnotize you and adults and children to turn them all into good consumers. Now we're getting into consumerism, and we could say global warming is caused by overpopulation and consumerism. And a lot of people won't like that. The economy is caused by the war, and they'll blame it on other things. But so much of the really important things that psychically sensitive people or just ordinary people can see happening mm-hmm. uh, in this culture has got to go through a change. No question and, about it. Clearly, you know. And yet yet what what I'd like to say or or basically ask you is, you know, for those of us that have accepted this paradigm that is a a great inheritance, a great spiritual inheritance that all the wisdom traditions of the world speak to and teach, that there there is um, this sort of in-the-moment ability, as you pointed out, for people to come into rapport through prayer and meditation and to become um, a force like the sun is. One thing, and I'll, I'll get to that in a roundabout kind of way, the, the science that looks at what makes up the universe, and we have the weak and the strong nuclear force, we have gravity, we have electromagnetism. But in a room full of physicists, the elephant in the room is the consciousness of life. Mm-hmm. a major part of those other things we just mentioned. Right. It's, a, it's its own dimension. Life is its own dimension and has to be considered that way. And, and so we're all part of, and if whether, you know, whatever you call uh, the ultimate, um, I tend to prefer either the great spirit or the cosmic consciousness. Cosmic consciousness... There are four supremes in the universe. Life. Life is subject to the laws of the earth. The earth is subject to the laws of the universe. The universe is subject to the laws of cosmic consciousness. And if your concept of God expands enough to see that, we're all it. Right. And as we silence our personality and our mind into phase coherence, we can then shift the consciousness, focus of attention up to the top of the head. If you're medical, that's the vertex. If you're uh, other wisdom traditions, that's the crown chakra. When you shift your focus there so that you are a light dwelling in the watery caverns of the brain's ventricles, as as my friend Ray Gottlieb would say, you are no longer identifying with the parts of the brain that keep track of space and time. You can then either leave the body, channel energy in, or travel in space and or time. And we, we can all find that space because we're part of it. And as research has shown, a, you know, a person is in operation and then all their electromagnetism goes flat, so they say, oh, well, they're dead. That's the official definition of dead is there's no heartbeat, there's no brainwave. And yet the person is up there on the ceiling watching the operation and eventually comes back into the body, restarts the electromagnetism, and, uh, and can talk about it. 
Right. We, we've shared many hours on the air with people and their personal experience, as well as the researchers who look at both near-death experience, out-of-body travel. And when you look at all of these things that show us that we are consciousness, and then we are consciousness having an experience in the body, um, when when you look, Jean, for instance, at the value of all of the sacred traditions, whether it's chanting or whether it's dancing or whether it's some other form of um, trance making, what is it that these, what do these disciplines do so that the person is elevated? Why does it do that? Well, context is, is everything in a, you know, in a, a small community type circle, a meditation circle, you're all expecting to go there, you want to go there, you've experienced it, it's a loving, combining field, a recognition that all of our higher consciousnesses, uh, that love is what makes it all happen. Mm -hmm. Would it be fair to say that love is actually the field that gets conditioned by our attention and intention? Well, yes, because, of course, there are groups that get together like, you know, Hitler and everybody yelling Heil Hitler or something. Those things can happen, too, and they're mm-hmm. not uh, uh, love of each other, but everybody else is going to hell or something. No, we ha- it's the, the important part. One thing is to, one, feel connected. The second thing is your interpretation of that. Right. And that's another right. reason why I like mild feedback in education, because it's non-denominational. Mm-hmm. I have prepared the Foundation for Mind Being Research dot org has put my CD on self discovery uh, science on their website, and you can download it for free. And what this and, is, and what is the website address again? FMBR for Foundation for Mind Being Research. FMBR dot org. Okay, and that's where they can get the free CD on your work. He, I think he has it all up now. Oh, wonderful. He may not, he may be missing some, but right. it, what it is, 80-page material of other teachers who used biofeedback in the classroom and the kind of results they got. There's some theory, paper on theories, and there's, uh, you know, and some on the history of people that started doing this, you know, the pioneers, Joe Camilla and Elmer Green, and, mm-hmm. and those who introduced us to to uh, brainwaves that we can understand, we can, because our spirit is multidimensional, we can operate our electromagnetism. And when, for for importance in school, there's so much violence there. They don't have an outlet. The basic understanding that most schools, certainly inner city schools, don't have is that creativity comes from either your, your, your high energy emotions, if they're anger and fear, you can bring them into phase coherence and find a creative use for them. The whole system could be advanced by our creativity and our understanding of the fact that we share it. People will find children and people find out that what they say, the words they use, affect their own physiology. Is that, you know, we've done numerous shows about the effect of watching things and the amount of violence that we take in through our eyes and television is a, is a depth and breadth of violence most humans would never encounter in the world. Even in war, they wouldn't see most of what we see on television as normative entertainment. And it, 
you know, really sort of not only does it shoot down your adrenal glands, but it deadens the neurophysiological response to grace because you have nothing left to pick up that finer, you know, impulse from things around you, whether it's the dog or the tree or the sunlight. This is 21st Century Radio, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. We'll be back after this. Hello, this is Jeffrey Mishlove speaking. I'm the Dean of Transformational Psychology at the University of Philosophical Research. I think you might enjoy visiting our website, www.uprs.edu. If you're interested in a master's degree in transformational psychology or consciousness studies, and you're listening right now to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, I have to say, Dr. Zoe is an incredible resource. She has been doing these interviews now for three decades, and that makes her a great maven, a great sage, a font of wisdom, and a fabulous interviewer. And we're back. Now let's return to our program. Jean, I want to talk a little bit about our society's um, really deprivation. And, and I agree with you and have always referred to our economy as a death economy. And then if it were a life economy, health would look different, uh, housing would look different, everything would be different. So when we find ourselves sort of in the age of Kali Yuga's the one the Hindu tradition might refer to it as sort of the dark of the dark, and we're about to bottom out. What does accessing these, as Ingo Swan called them, superpower, biomind sort of talents, these non-local um, aptitudes we have, what can it do for us as individuals and as a civilization? Well, it, everything needs to change, but I, I'd like to go back a minute to why I want biofeedback by 10-year-olds. Please. Because when they learn energy medicine, we can, we can overcome the uh, terrible grip that the pharmaceutical companies have on mm-hmm. our thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, those things that cause more pain, and, and there's so many inconsistencies here. But one of the things that is most important about that CD is that there are four... Uh, colored pages that need to be printed landscape the, the long way and then cut out and put together and that makes up a one meter long, a 40 inch long electromagnetic spectrum chart in color so that 10 year olds can understand it. Now, for a long time you didn't get any of electromagnetism unless you took physics in high school and you were going to college. But it's so fundamental. The kids are going around with their iPods on their ear and all of the electrical gadgets that they live with without any really understanding of what the the 7.8 frequency of the Earth is all about. But in this uh, electromagnetic chart, I show where the brainwaves fit and where the heartbeat fits and relates to the Earth and the sun and the lengths of the waves and so on. All of the... the, How beautiful. so that they can see without teaching religion in the school that we're all connected. That's where we are. Well, you know, I remember yeah. when the sort of the the I don't the Caucasian culture got introduced to reggae and everybody was feeling how natural and elevating it was and then when you found out that it was the rhythm of the heartbeat, you know, mm-hmm. then then intellectually people understood, oh, that's why it feels so good and 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 the Schumann resonance that you mentioned, the the 7.8 hertz of the earth 
many studies have been done, or I don't know to what degree one can can trust them at this point, but I remember early research by Robert Becker um, talking about the fact that all of our overlays of electromagnetics and the frequencies that we're using now from satellite to whatever, infrared, whatever, is affecting this basic um, rhythm of the Earth. What have you found along those lines? Well, we live up in the hills, and we don't have incoming television. Uh huh. And uh, uh, my husband has planted five hundred trees, and he stays in um, spiritual communication with the trees and mm-hmm. physical health. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see lights at night when we turn our lights out, except the stars. Right. And I know I've been here for 15 years now, and it it, it affects, it's definitely a strong effect to having an opportunity to turn off the television. And sometimes people record stuff for us, and I play it. You have solar power, so of course we have electricity. Uh-huh. And, uh, and when we, then fast forward the commercials, but it makes us realize how weird it's getting after all these years of the frequencies of commercial television, well, television itself, and there's really the political dangers of, of corporate hypno- television hypnosis. This is, um, you know, it's hard to, hard to address when you think that the major television stations which, uh, you know, get their licenses from the government are not taxed. Right, yeah, it's supposed to be a public trust, but try to talk about the things we're talking about in network, and the closest you'll get is sort of a, um entertainment version of death and dying. <laughs> I mean, it, and it's and unfortunately, you know, when you look at mystery traditions, how they get diluted so that real searchers don't get through the door, and they think that the parody of it is the real thing, that's even more tragic than sometimes nothing happening. Well, there's been one improvement from the early days is that anything phenomenal shown in the early days was, was evil and witchcraft. Right, so right. it isn't all that anymore. Right. It's the, the, the truth of our multidimensional nature is something that kids should learn as soon as, you know, from their families. Well, they're not going to learn it from the families because the families are brainwashed, so they need to learn it in school. And I think that's one of the reasons that, unfortunately, so many, uh, you know, homeschool and and those children don't get, even get evolution or, the, or that the Earth is, is older than 8,000 years. And so it's a, I understand why there's a throwback to that fundamentalism because the spirit is not included. Right. And the understanding, first of all... Well, and, and I'd also like to add that it, my experience of fundamentalism yeah, of any kind um, any, has so you, much fear no, built into right. it. Any fundamentalist that sticks to, uh, uh, you know, th- these are the rules, and, and if you don't fit, you, you're all going to hell or whatever. Anything that is exclusion, I call them exclusionary religion. Right, right. Any exclusion is not made for peace. It's not made for getting along in the world. It's a big world, and if we go from 6 billion people to 9 billion people, there's going to be a scramble. Now, the world has 
maybe Earth has its own agenda. Population has always been controlled by war and disease. It seems like we should And Earth find changes. It. I, I think there's a long trajectory of catastrophism and rebirth. I mean, in looking at the billion-year cycles that our Earth yeah, seems to be involved in. Yeah, but we don't need in. to do that. You know? No, we, we don't. And, and if a, a number of, uh, you know, a few, a billion people can actually uh, focus on, on one thing, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just random number generators that could change. Mm-hmm. That's the hint of it. And and along those lines, we're we're gonna we're, we've come to the end of this hour. You were gracious enough to agree to stay with us, and I thank you ever so deeply because I feel like our conversation is just warming up. <laughs> and I have a lot of questions for you about the role of myth making and images, and the role of numbers. Because one interesting thing you mentioned a little earlier, and you talk about in your book, Multidimensional Mind, is that. When we look at sensory perceptions, whether it's empathy or hearing or visualization, that we sense things in pairs and opposites, and that seems to be part of being an Earth being. It's built in. It's part of Dean Brown's Cosmic Law. That's also on the FMBR website for free download. Okay. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Oh, wonderful. Again, to get more information from Dr. Jean Millet's wonderful work, you can use it freely in the schools and community for yourself with study groups. Go to www.fmbr.org. That's fmbr.org. Her book, Multidimensional Mind, Remote Viewing in Hyperspace. And Jean will be with us next hour. But don't go away because we're going to talk about the different kinds of perception, how we can develop visual and motor activity to expand the memory of vision. You know, oftentimes I've talked um, sometimes about prophecy and the art of prophecy, and Maimonides said that two things were equally important for the prophet, and that was not, one, the emotional capacity of courage, and number two, a vibrant and vital imagination, which meant the ability to see and then hold that image. So we're going to talk with Jean Millet a little bit about image, image making. We'll talk about precognitive dreaming, the successful experiment. She's recorded about it and much more. So don't go away. We'll return right after this. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and this is 21st Century Radio. Now we return to our interview. Dr. Jean Millay, M-I-L-L-A-Y. Her 1999 book, Multidimensional Mind, Remote Viewing in Hyperspace, is literally an anthology catalog of some of the finest research in remote viewing and other psi phenomena. Also, her free CD, so you can learn about biofeedback, help children get it into the school system, use it in youth groups or other community places. Go to www.fmbr. Dot org. So, Jean, we covered really just a little corner of your magnificent book, Multidimensional Mind. So I, I'd like to talk about an, another arena, which is that of the imagination and visualization or the role of images for the human. Because it seems that all sacred societies will teach through storytelling, whether it's an oral story, a painting, um, or a telling of things that happen in time and place. Why are images so important for us? Well, actually, the we have different intelligence systems, and that's what we found out doing the telepathy. Some people were more dominant in their images. Other people had 
could transmit words better and so on. But the image language, and that's, you know, before literacy, we can see more than we can talk about. And my best remote viewers had been drawing everything that came across their path since they were little kids. They had books and books and books of drawing. They could draw anything so that if they had an image, something they didn't know what it was, they didn't have to know. They just drew it. Mm -hmm. When you have to give a word for something or classify something, that's when error comes in because then you're limited to what's already in your, in your memory. So direct vision is, is important. Now, what you perceive is basically what you believe in ordinary thinking and conversation, but in, in remote viewing, you need to be able to, you know, shape color um, and, and then go back and, and try to f find out what it's, what it's about rather than seeing you suddenly, somebody sends a picture of a hat, for instance, and the other person gets exact same shape and color and it's a flying saucer. It's because it's what they were thinking about. Well, it, you know, it doesn't uh, really get off the track that way. We have just as much trouble often talking to each other face to face if we come from different backgrounds, as we do try to communicate with them in the next room uh, by closing our eyes. But one of the things that has been very strong with me, and uh, since I was an art teacher for a long time before I got into this field, is that the children learn to see. And color books, I don't like them. They distort the visual spatial perception in many cases. You know, if you're looking at a drawing by uh, Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Leonardo, this, the, uh, the sense, the feeling sense of three-dimensional space has been captured on a two-dimensional plane. But if your color books and your IQ books, you know, that have little cartoons and little line drawings, and they are done by a person who doesn't understand that, there's many distortions. Uh, and, for instance, uh, oh, I remember one drawing. It shows a guy trying to saw a, log, saw a log. And the thing the kid was supposed to notice to get credit for an IQ point was that the, uh, the saw teeth were on the top. Mm -hmm. Whereas... The drawing showed the leg was too long. It was like the thing was floating in space. <laughs> there are many things wrong with it. And children who actually uh, responded with those perceptions were marked wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, my feeling is that the first, as soon as your baby can scribble, you should be given materials to do so. And there's a certain development of the kinds of scribbles, straight lines, circles, a circle for a head, sometimes, you know, arms coming out. That's a, a development between their uh, perceptual relationship to the outer world and their inner development. And that should be completed without any interference whatsoever with color, but unless it's, you know, geometric or mandalas or something like that that doesn't represent people or animals and things they should be encouraged to draw from life. 
Now, I never let my kids have color books. My daughter, right away, when she was two and a half and three, would go down to the ocean and she could draw little shells and crabs and things like that. She, she carefully looked at them. And as you draw from life, you see more when you look. And as an art teacher, I would have students take turns drawing each other, and then I'd give them a fine drawing by uh, Picasso's early period or, or by Leonardo or something and have them make a, a line drawing and have them make a copy of it and then go back and look at the person. And it's not that I wanted to turn them all into Rembrandts. I just, it's, it's an important class for a scientist to know what they're looking at and not just be symbolic. Well, and I, and I think you also touched on something else, which is the feeling nature of relationship to what one sees. And when working with, and Bob and I have worked with all different kinds of children, and some who haven't had much exposure to nature, um, don't have the same kind of um, sensitivity, I guess, developed that gives them confidence about their own feelings and the feelings they have about the things around them. Well, it's kind of been educated out, flattened out. It's you know, it's part of not knowing that they're a multidimensional being when you you're brought up on on certain cement and um, processed foods. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't lead to great inner creativity. But when you, but when you talk about these things and you talk about them as both an educator and a researcher and and a and a woman, I mean, I have to add that there's this element of intuition that women in particular can can bring to any subject and any inquiry. And I think sometimes our outside the boxedness is the nature of our womb. And when you have a womb, you have this ability to make space for something else to happen. So share with us for a moment, jumping from biofeedback, where we become capable of self-management for self, um, I guess, um, originated elevation that connects us to others. What are some things that the person in the listening audience might might do to enhance these aptitudes that they have? A womb with a view. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, it's finding out that you are a unique individual in a, in a room full of folks that you have things in common, but instead of trying to be like everybody else, the fact that you are unique, if the classroom accepted that, you know, if every kid comes in and says, wow, how are you different, and uh, how are you the same, mm-hmm. and we honor that. Mm-hmm. And then the idea that you are a multidimensional spirit who has helped evolve this uh, space-time manifestation brain-body, and you have your unique memories, you have your unique experiences, uh, you have, uh, you may have brought in your past life experiences, and you see things differently. Uh, you may even see further into the uh, visible spectrum than others, and you don't want that educated out of you. You know that you may see lights around people, or you may uh, remember. Uh, no, I, I have to say, I have to back up here a little bit. After my sister passed on, I asked her 
do we really have past lives, or because we're infinite eternal beings, is it that we can just identify with any past drama that, uh, that is appropriate for our goal? Your response is you perceive what you believe. Mm-hmm. But uh, that is the... And this is what she said to you after she had already crossed over? Yes. To, yes. Okay. And then uh, what Ruthinga, after she had crossed over, had indicated is that as the spirit, and this is related to your question, but it's a roundabout way, that the spirit, as the spirit leaves the body, it naturally identifies with its most recent personality. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's a limitation, I mean, the spirit world is rich, and she spent her life uh, studying shamanism and teaching that and having these conferences so we could share this information. So she was certainly aware that she could go into the light and be oneness with everything if she wanted to, and she could also... Uh, be a spirit and and enjoy that whole realm that's happening and to promote the the realm of the spirit world as part of her education. So what she said is that if you're you know if a person dies in anger like like they would in war or in pain and then they leave the body, they may hold on to that pain and they may hold on to that anger and insist on being born in another society where there's more, where, you know, like one of the ghetto areas where there's massive anger all the time. We do not process our war dead. Some religions certainly will pray for them and so on, but if there's a limited idea that you either go to heaven, hell, or purgatory, you know, and maybe you didn't consider your life perfect, you don't want to go either place. I've encountered spirits that uh, hung out because they wanted to, or mm-hmm. Laurel, the healer, her husband, stayed around to help her. Yeah, Olga is a close friend of my husband's back then. Well, and you know, and, and that's an interesting phenomena that the soul being eternal has an option to choose what school it's going to attend and whether it's going to stay at the house it was born in until their children are all raised and the grandchildren deceased or to oversee something that's going on in a particular city that they may have spent an incarnation with. So we're always surrounded and interfacing with those that are no longer embodied, but we are entrained to them. And I think any of us who have loved someone or a teacher or a parent or a grandparent or a child who has passed over continues that conversation. And sometimes it's stronger than others. So when people though, and people are always asking me, you know, for exercises that they can do and one of the things that um, if you could address, I remember both Ingo Swan and Joe McMoneagle, one of the military remote viewers said is the greatest um, development is to learn how to suspend your judgment and not categorize things, but just to observe what you see or to hear what you hear and try not to interpret it as much as to come into relationship with it. Well, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And that's part of what I was saying before about visions. You know, what you see, you don't have to name it. You don't have to make it fit into any other category. But we tend to. The mind tends to want to, the left hemisphere wants to analyze and categorize and name things. We are definitely conditioned to do that. Mm -hmm. The the process, and we'll get back to seeing, is that by the time, if you actually train people to see more when they look, 
and to remember and to focus, then when they're doing something like remote viewing, you have a, a very good chance of, of more success because you're not calling on uh, a distorted memory. Mm-hmm. Among my students in the telepathy, they get a shape and color, they get something, that, oh, that's like I saw on television. And, you know, he was sitting around watching a lot of television. I still remember a jingle that was played over and over again on the radio for something we no longer use, and that jingle's still there. It had to do with super suds. You don't want a lot of suds in your washing machine today, but back in the 30s, mm-hmm. it was desirable. Mm-hmm. So those repetition, and those are the, 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 the ads are rep- repeated, are the first things your little kids learn if the TV's left on all the time. Right. And and it's interesting in the same way. I was thinking about um, folk sayings, how there's so much wisdom in them and that there aren't many of them anymore, that it's kind of generated facades. And we, we're not really even watching stories like traditional storytelling. We're watching, um, you know, invented drama. And it's a very different thing than something that is told by generations from generation of an, of an archetypal drama. And, and well, there's good and bad with that, because there's some old myths we could do without mm-hmm. that are pretty dominant in our culture that are holding us back. You want to give us an example of what you're speaking of? Well, I don't want to offend anybody, but let's face it, Genesis has is is got serious problems. And when you take it literally, it, you, you skip history, you, you skip real knowledge, you skip what the rocks are telling us. To, to stick with what's written a number of years ago, translated through several belief systems and languages, and, uh, you know, and, and it's been around for centuries and centuries, and it really, uh, it's only symbolically related to the formation of the Earth and the cosmos and the time and the evolution and the, the message in the rocks and the ice ages and the warmings and the coolings and, and all of those things. Once a, a, a paradigm is established, it took a couple of thousand years to get past Aristotle's idea that the, were, the Earth was in the middle and didn't move around. And when Galileo tried to point out, hey, if you look, you mm-hmm. might be different, you know, he got into terrible trouble and it took a long time to accept it after, even after that. So that's a paradigm change. Right, and, and I think in your Chapter 9 of your book where you talk about belief systems and the politics of suppression and then whether it's atheism or unfounded beliefs or logic that flows from belief or disbelief, I mean, that that how we um, hold something is limiting our vision and just we have to take a break but it reminds me i tell people you know when you can't find something like your keys it's amazing how the aperture literally of your visual intake shuts down when you have emotional distress and because you think you can't find them you can't see them even when they're right in front of you and i think that all of our life is like that in the spiritual realm because we don't think we can see it we don't and we narrow our aperture not through greater concentration but through less attention and then when we bump into a spirit who's standing in the hall, you know, we feel it, but we pretend we don't. So we'll be right back. Our guest is Dr. Jean Millay, M-I-L-L-A-Y. Go to www.fmbr.org. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dr. PMH Atwater 
I'm one of the original researchers in the field of near-death studies. Done a lot with generations, the new children, evolution, my newest book, Children of the Fifth World. And I've had the privilege and the great fun of being on 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zahara Hieronymus. And you know, she is just such a great interviewer. I absolutely love being on her show. She's smart. She's right there. She's quick. Who could ask for a better interviewer? You are lucky to just be listening. Have fun with this great lady. Thank you. Let's get right back to our guest. Dr. Millay's book is full of these beautiful color images that were done by those who did the remote viewing and the direct sending and the reception. And it's just a beautiful, comprehensive, um, I guess, more than an introduction, a true overview of where the field of multidimensional mind is in the scientific community. You can also go to the website, www.f mbr.org and download a free CD, which is 75 to 80 some pages that teaches you all about biofeedback and how you can make use of this in the community, in your schools and communities, uh, wherever to enhance people's ability to really explore their inner life and therefore have greater breadth, I guess, and creativity in the world. When you look, um, Jean, as you have at different kinds of logic and realms of non-local space-time, and you described how even you knew of a death in the family because the person after they died had come to you in the same way I knew my grandfather had died before I was told in a similar way. And many of our listeners have had similar experiences. What about precognition under hypnosis or precognition as a result of a near-death experience? I mean, it seems that sometimes not everybody agrees what precognition is. Oh, boy. Well... It's, it's one thing to step outside of your space and look at something that's ongoing. That's, uh, that's an easier thing to do. Uh, when you're dealing with precog, there be several levels. I think that if something's in the works, I mean, something has started, you've, you've shot an a astronaut to the moon, and you know the trajectory, and you know... You have it all figured out that he's going to land there and, you know, when he's going to land there three or four days hence. You know, that's that's a logical progression, and if everything goes right, then he will. Uh, if you uh, have a dream about getting on an airplane and it crashes and you decide not to, then that's, it's not, there's some, your higher consciousness is is letting you know that, that you don't have to take that trip, that you have things to do. And and that's another kind. But to, you know, try to read the uh, stock market, you probably had Russell Targon. Mm-hmm, where yes. They, where they, you know, did nine guesses of the futures market in a row and then turned around and had nine misses in a row. Mm-hmm. So there's something uh, that has to do with... Um, Need. You know, for what reason? Yeah, exactly, for need. need uh-huh, exactly. If it's urgent and you need to know. Now, there's some folks at the remote viewing who went down and, and were able to make some money in Las Vegas off a crap table, you know, but <laughs> um, I tend not, I, I suppose I'd be better off if I did, but I, I, I have seen in the past that when you have a need to know, 
you can get information. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing it for show... Or self, or, self-aggrandizement or ego or fame or money. Chances are you're going to be, you're not going to be so accurate. Mm-hmm. And Which is interesting because, again, it comes back to the way in which our intention affects the outcome of what universe reflects back. Well, intention is certainly 75% of everything. Mm-hmm. And you want to, you know... There's a lot of us with different intentions, so do we interact, or is there, uh, you know, it's your thing to do in the world, and you're going to just keep doing it against all odds, and then finally something happens. Um, those, uh, a number of the physicists, Elizabeth, uh, Rauscher, Dean Radin, uh, Russell Targ, Nick Herbert, uh, Saul Paul Sirag, they've been working on these things mm-hmm. in terms of physics. And and they're doing, they always come up with some really interesting ideas. I haven't spent that much time on precognition. We, we didn't do that well in our precognition. I mean, it would sometimes happen. Uh, in the studies that I did, I mean, if I've sometimes had a premonition that something was going to happen or I could see, oh, well, price of gold is going to go up, you know. But then that's, that's sort of, a part of uh, the way it's all going. <laughs> <laughs> when when you, I want to switch gears for a moment because I'd also like to touch on trance, but before that, you know, there there's terminologies within the sacred societies for different phenomena that the psi or remote viewer would call something else. And I've always been interested in what is called divine grace. Well, that's... Um... Uh, great if you can, if it happens, you know. <laughs> At the same time, there is that moment when you're in meditation or maybe you're just washing the dishes and not thinking about anything else, when a, a feeling, a light, a radiance can sort of surround you and you know you've been touched and and you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> you know, there's something... <laughs> you know, Better than a womb with a view. <laughs> right. Um, and even someone who's had, you know, you would think will have earned some bad karma or have had a lot of bad luck, even though they're sweet people. And then, and you wonder why, and maybe it's very deep, and then suddenly, you know, it's changed, mm-hmm. turned around. Everything looks bleak, and, and, and it's turned around. And that, you'd say, well, that would be divine grace. Then again, you know, maybe, uh, what can I say? These are ideas for discussion. I, I don't feel that they, there's any resolution to it particularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I would agree with you, and so it always I'm always interested in those, the big wow things of the mystical path. I mean, it's interested me always that most of the society's teachings are about non-attachment in one way or another, and yet my experience in life shows me that through loving one you can learn to love all, and I don't look at it as this horrible thing to love animals, to love a person, to love my house, to love, you know, to love what I inhabit while I'm alive. It seems to me that love is love, and I, 
and I, uh, anyway, it's just one of those things that the physics part of my intellect tells me love is the field and it's that which is the glue of the universe. And then you hear these mystical teachings that tell you, well, don't be attached. And I'm thinking, but love is not necessarily attachment as much as appreciation. Well, uh, my favorite teacher of a while back, Dean Brown, he was a metaphysicist, a physicist. He developed wonderful new toys for... What did you say his name was, Gene? Education in computers, and now he passed away a few years ago. What was his name? I didn't hear you. Dean Brown. Uh-huh. And he, his final writing, he was translating Sanskrit, and when he was translating the Yoga Sutras, and I was looking for somebody who had the light sculpture, didn't know much about EEG, brainwaves, and somebody who will talk to Dean. Well, he, in the Yoga Sutras, it says... Yoga, which is union with God, is is stopping the cheetah vritti, which means the vibrations of the mind. So, you know, I hooked him up to the brain machine, and he went into his state. Well, it isn't stopping. If you're stopping, you're you, you know you're out of the body. Right. But what it is is holding a steady uh, frequency, holding a steady pattern that's even and and uh, phase coherent and mm-hmm. synchronous. Mm-hmm. Uh, without any uh, distractions in it. Mm-hmm. That means you're not talking to yourself. You're just sort of in the flow. Right, being. His, his teaching was the difference between attachment, detachment, and non-attachment. And non-attachment is the way you love the best. Mm-hmm. Because when you're attached, then you worry about it. When uh, you know, worry about losing your attachment or you grieve over losing the attachment. When you're detached, you don't care. But when you're not attached, you care the very best because you can see it as it is and and love it as it is. And and if the path you're on takes it away, you can you can you adjust to that too because you're not so attached that you're you know ready to kill yourself. I like that non-attachment. That's that's well well described. And then another arena mm-hmm. that we've looked at over the years on this program and I think we've talked about to some degree publicly is how little silence there is in our culture and why many people are drawn to the Buddhist tradition or others where silence becomes um, a place and an experience and that it's not empty at all. Share with us what biofeedback and perhaps your own work with children and the use of silence contributes. Well, it's fundamental. And before we get past Dean Brown, I wanted to say that his final writing is called Cosmic Law. And it's also available on the same fmbr.org. That's the Foundation for Mind Being Research. Uh, and you can, you can call it up and get a free download on that, too. He didn't, as, as he was, um, knew he was about to graduate from Earth School, mm-hmm. he wanted that to be available to everyone. How lovely. Cosmic Law. Again, go to the Foundation for Mind Being Research. That's www.fmbr. Dot org. Right. Okay. Now, back to your other question. About quiet. Silence. Well, <laughs> we live here. Mm-hmm. We, uh, Daryl is an extraordinary genius, and he uh, set this up, the house. It's uh, basically a 
one-room house, partly underground. The roof isn't underground. That takes too much foundation for that. It faces southeast for good solar activity. Uh, the pantry is totally underground. It keeps it at a constant earth temperature. And uh, then, of course, he has a shop, and I have a studio. But the uh, he has a passive solar water heater that doesn't take any moving parts. The uh, photovoltaic cells takes care of our electricity and a backup uh, generator if if the sun doesn't shine very long. And we have a natural spring, and the uh, uh, solar power pumps the water from the spring up to the house. So we hear wind in the trees, and we hear birds, and we hear the coyotes howl once in a while. And about 18 deer came by the other morning for the salt lick. But we, it's quiet. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think, oh, gee, I would just wish I could turn on the television and watch the news. But then when I, you know, somebody senses some, or I go down to the city or something and see some, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, the... What you refer to as the Schumann Resonance, which is currently called the Ionosphere Earth Waveguide, is a... Uh, I'm a decade behind on that one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it'll be called the Ionosphere Earth Waveguide on my, on my chart. All right. Uh, and it was, uh, it was predicted by Schumann, and then they finally were able to measure it, and then... Uh, uh, another genius named Bob Beck, who was also graduated from a school, but he had developed the equipment to measure it. And uh, whereas the first paper said 7.5, he really got it down to 7.8. Mm-hmm. And that's the low level of your alpha rhythm and the upper level of your theta rhythm. And the Native American Rolling Thunder would say, you know, you you become very quiet and then the earth speaks to you. You go up on the hillside and and become a rock so that you, you know, you're not separate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the animals or the plants will provide information, especially if you have a, you know, you, you have a question. So that the the trees provide information. The um, uh, when Daryl needed to know about a plant and how to uh, uh, cultivate it, and there was nothing in the literature. People seemed to think it was too hard to cultivate it. He went out and sat in the middle of this plant and asked the grandmother plant and uh, showed gave him a, a feeling or an image or a thought of what to do. Not words, of course. Now, that's how Rolling Thunder, the Native Americans, would, how they understood plants, how they understood healing. They had, uh, uh, they knew about all the plants and what they were used for. And, you know, white people came and say, you know, ignorant savages, but they talked to the, right. the land they lived in. Mm-hmm. They didn't destroy the land they lived in. They, they blended in with it. They became it. Well, and I think that, that thank God the indigenous peoples of the world have continued these traditions for millennium, and they're intact in the sense that they're still holders of the sacred societies, and other people, when we incarnate perhaps outside that cycle, still bring 
with us the the memory feeling state that 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 culture gives it's just we seem out of place now you've worked with an awful lot of children and and we're going to take our, our last break but when we come back i'd like to talk a little bit about um how we as adults in the community can do so much to really protect children who have sensitivities and awareness and and enhance them because as inheritors of a of a difficult planetary um reality these aptitudes are are really vital i mean it's it's not really optional from my perspective they're vital tools of survival as well as creative flourishment we'll be right back our guest is jean malay and thank you for joining us we'll be right back this is dr tom Ballone from integrity research institute.org and you're listening to 21st century radio with dr zohara Hieronymus. Dr. Jean Millay's multidimensional mind, remote viewing, and hyperspace is really a must-add to your library. If you're looking for an overview with detailed, and I do mean detailed on every page, beautiful color prints and drawings from experimenters, actual um, way in which they do the work they do, whether they're in cl- close or distant proximity. So, Jean, before the hour is up, I, I know there were some things about trance that um, are probably important to add because sometimes people go into trance from um, desire, sometimes through ritual, sometimes through shock, sometimes just hypnotically, as you point out, through entrainment, whether it's television or repeated message. What, what, does, what is trance, and, and what happens to us in that state? Well, uh, there are different kinds of trance, but what happens and why it's different from ordinary consciousness is that when you synchronize your brain waves, then you have the opportunity to choose to go there. If you've had a, a shock, as you say, you might just suddenly find yourself there. Um, one of the more interesting ones is Luis Gasparetto. I don't know if you've talked to him. No, I haven't. He's uh, an espiritista in uh, Brazil. Now, espiritista is a whole, is a whole religious um, organization which is where they talk to spirits and they right. count on doing that i think alan kardec went there in uh, 18 something or others and and uh, talked to people about that and the spirit of society which is a worldwide society work with that yes mm-hmm. and there was there was in the philippines as well well mm-hmm. i was in brazil i had a chance to go to a meeting there which was very interesting but luis gasparetto his mother was a spiritista his grandmother and so on he, uh, as a young boy, found that he could go into trance and paint pictures that the artists, of different artists, and he would either turn, close his eyes and rub paint on his hand, he'd get the colors right first, or rub paint on his hand, close his eyes and paint a picture. And this one was supposed to be Rembrandt, and that one was supposed to be Monet or Manet or Van Gogh or whoever. Now, when he was at the Washington Research Center many years ago, he agreed to be filmed, and usually he does this in semi-darkness, and he likes music in the background. So, But he was willing to do this with light so it could be uh, videotaped. And in the space of less than two hours, he painted about 20, no, 15 paintings that are like 30 by, you know, 20 by 30 uh, board. And he even did one with his feet. But that was the we took him over to the lab to see 
what his trance state was like and what it was like to have spirits talking to him. And his state is very different than my own, so I'm assuming that there's a lot of differences. But he said he could ha- at one time he did a painting of two portraits simultaneously, one with each hand. <laughs> wow. That kind of impressed me. And Stereo. <laughs> Stereo reception. Well, that's what he said. He, he, sometimes he would have a different artist on, on each side of his head or operating each hand. So I said, right, come to the lab and let's take a look at the chart recording. Mm-hmm. So he did. And he, we asked him questions and uh, he spoke uh, with a uh, Portuguese accent, but when we asked him the theoretically was Toulouse-Lautrec who spoke with, and they were speaking English, but with a French accent. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of very interesting information. But when I asked him if he could ask the spirits to switch sides, the chart recorder showed a switch. Interesting. Now, that was quite a number of years ago, and I have so far haven't been able to find anybody who was uh, you know, willing to follow up on that research. But there's a, a great deal to be said here. Now, James Fadiman, have you ever talked to him on this show? No, I haven't. Wonderful, wonderful. He um, gave a talk at the Transpers- Institute for Transpersonal Psychology in Prague a number of years ago. I have the tape. I play it over again on multiple personalities. And how, a, and so that brings us to possession. Mm-hmm. And how one person knew who he was supposed to be that day because he had a different prescription for glasses for the different person who was going to be controlling him that day. But possession, you know, we really, it, it's, you know, funny to talk about these things, but I think today with the post-traumatic stress syndrome, right, right. Not all, for some people it's just the horror of the war they're in and the fear and the constant pressure. But for others, either the enemy or their friend they were trying to save and couldn't may have followed them home. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and for those that are sensitive, and I'm sometimes a little too sensitive and aren't so great at, like, keeping things out <laughs> from my environment, I've I've brought home antiques sometimes and, and get the memory shadow of the person who own them, and I have to have a conversation with them to tell them, you know, that I'll take good care of it. They can let it go now. And so that was one of the questions I wondered about, you know, the difference between, and we've done numerous shows on the difference between hauntings and um, poltergeist and spirit resonance and trace memory. Um, But when we put them all together, what we're talking about are sometimes the after effects of consciousness. Yes, thoughts thoughts are left into things. It's part of the reason why some psychics working for the police, they want to have right. something that belongs to that person. Mm-hmm. From the many people that are around that, you know, with their energies, it's, it's a way of focusing. Right. Some don't need it, some do. Which one um, could say every system of belief is a way by which we then can operate? Well, let's say find a, a system of belief that works. Mm-hmm. Here's my statement. Mm-hmm. And is so that real magic, and I'm talking about what we're talking about here, right. real magic is telepathy, spiritual healing, psychokinesis, whatever. Real magic can be created by anyone by maintaining 
an intention, a steady focus of intention through an appropriate belief system. Mm -hmm. And that appropriate belief system is, you know, is, is important because there are some things that totally will uh, not be possible in, uh, uh, you know, in the, the laws of the cosmic consciousness. You know, it's, it's interesting. You bring to mind a discussion I had with Joseph Allen, who was one of the Apollo 7 astronauts who was responsible for all the Apollo flight communications. And I asked him on one of my shows whether the astronauts had ever discussed the power of human consciousness, that eventually we could use the Earth as our ship and that the, the Earth itself would be human, the humanity ship that we operate through consciousness. And I was so surprised when he said, yes, we do talk about things like that. And I was, you know, grateful to Edgar Mitchell and others, you know, who have joined the program, who have talked about this this awareness of the allness of the oneness, and um, as you have. But we have just a few moments left, and I know your passion, Gene, is in children and in helping our youth because that is our future what would you like to say to our audience with the remaining few moments we have we are a spirit occupying and guiding and growing and being part of the personality mind brain that that is for the moment in this space time frame we are not limited to it. It is important for children to know that if they have a memory of a past life, somebody doesn't say, oh, don't be silly, or you're just imagining things, or if they have an imaginary friend, that these things are honored. They're dreams. When they, the family is together and a child wakes up and they say, well, what did you dream last night? And they share their dreams, and then these things become real. These things become something that they know. They go to school and somebody says, oh, you're so stupid. They know that isn't true. Mm-hmm. They might have a limitation in learning math or, you know, I don't play the piano. But it doesn't mean they're stupid. It means that they have their, they have something to do. They're here and they find their own way of who they are and why they came and what they contri- contribute to their uh, family, their community their world. We all have something to positive to contribute. The present school system is designed for madness. I've taught in those schools. Mm-hmm. And I understand why they got up seven, you know, 30, 30 years ago or so when I was teaching in a, a ghetto school and the kids were graduating from high school without learning to read past the third grade level. Mm-hmm. And their parents didn't. And their parents didn't. And the... Uh, the Spanish-speaking and the black Americans were always violently opposed to each other. Now, part of that is because there's no respect. And there's one other thing that I wanted to say. You know, we've created a lot of refugees in, in Iraq, but what we have here is not illegal aliens, but refugees from two corrupt governments, theirs and ours. That has to do with the drug war. That has it's it's badly managed. That has to do with the lack of understanding of people taking care of people. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to well, I want to thank you. I mean, we unfortunately have to say goodbye. You have um, 
a lot of deep and loving thoughts for the world and obviously a great deal of compassion that comes from your awareness of how we are connected and how we can enhance that connection. So, you know, if 21st Century Radio can be of service to you in the future, Gene, as you move into other areas, we'd love for you to revisit us. And um, I thank you for joining us for all of this evening. Well, thank you. It's, it's a, a pleasure and an honor to be able to express these things I've been mulling over for 79 years. (laughs) Well, wonderful. May you have many more, and uh, thank you all for being part of 21st Century Radio. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus & Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.